MSW Media. Hey everybody, today's episode of MSW Book Club is brought to you by Quip. Good health starts with good habits and Quip makes it easy by delivering all the essentials you need to care for your mouth. The Quip electric toothbrush is loved by over 7 million mouths. The Quip has timed sonic vibrations with 30 second pulses to guide a dentist recommended two minute clean. It has a lightweight and sleek design for adults and kids with no wires or bulky chargers to weigh you down. It comes with a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter and it has a reusable handles in a range of sleek metal hues, including best-selling all black and all pink, my favorite, as well as bright plastic colors to make a pop in your bathroom counter. On top of your brushing, you can upgrade your Quip with a new smart motor to track and improve your brushing with a free Quip app. Earn amazing rewards like free refills and products, Target gift cards, and more. Beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine and delivers fresh floss and toothpaste, mouthwash, and gum refills every three months. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping with stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just $25. You won't be paying through the teeth for better or better oral health. So if you get go to getquip.com slash book club right now, you'll get your first refill for free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash book club. That's spelled get G-E-T quip Q-U-I-P dot com slash book club. Quip, the good habits company. And today's show is also brought to you by QB. Think about how many hours we spend sitting on our desks on the couch watching TV, but what if you could turn those inactive times into active times to burn calories and get fit? That's what I'm doing, and that's what I got for my mom with the new QB. That's C-U-B-I-I. It's a compact elliptical unit that fits under my desk, so I can pedal while I'm sitting there and get a workout while I'm doing nothing, but I'm actually pedaling. In fact, I'm using it right now while I'm recording this commercial, because QB is whisper quiet, so it doesn't bother you. It's super easy on your joints. It's low impact, and a recent clinical study confirms it helps burn 84% more energy energy than just sitting. We all say I'd work out if I had more time. Well, QB makes it easy to burn calories and stay active anytime and virtually anywhere. In fact, I set up my QB uh, in front of the couch to burn some calories while I watch TV. Watch my Ted Lasso. QB is also a perfect solution for anyone who might be homebound or otherwise needs something to help improve circulation and keep active. So if you have a parent or loved one who has limited mobility and needs a way to stay healthy, QB makes a great gift. Um, and, I, you know, I love mine. I know you will tell my mom loves hers. Take advantage of QB's 30-day risk-free in-home trial. Turn your least active times into your most productive opportunities to stay healthy with QB. Visit QB.com slash MSW to find the QB elliptical model that's right for you. That's QB, C-U-B-I-I. I.com slash MSW. You'll be glad you did. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to the MSW Book Club for Colonel Alex Vindman's book called Here, Right Matters. 
Today is a short episode, just one chapter. Chapter five, The Moral Compass, begins on page 69 of the hardcover copy, and it opens outside of Fallujah with a description of an IED attack on Vindman's Humvee. And I'm quoting here, he watched from a discreet distance as the U.S. Humvee convoy left the combat outpost. The size of this convoy suggested that it might be carrying an important person. It was clearly a reconnaissance patrol. This meant that it would come back to the outpost before returning to its main base. And so he prepared his attack. Selecting a spot on the road just outside the outpost, he staged an explosive device in a bicycle and then set the bike beside the road. It looked as if someone had just walked away from it. And then he waited. When the convoy came into view again on its way back to the outpost, just as expected, he selected the third vehicle as his target. That was training. Watched uh, the first vehicle pass. He mentally triggered the device to hone his timing. He did the same thing when the second vehicle passed. And then when the third vehicle passed, he had the timing down and he set off the device. So when the smoke cleared, Alex had assessed the damage and saw that Marine Captain Adams was incapacitated. The gunner was slumped at the turret. The driver was alive. He was yelling at himself, saying, I knew it. I knew it. I saw that bike talking about how he saw it and didn't listen to his gut. And they were on a joint reconnaissance, reconnaissance patrol outside Fallujah, which was just outside Baghdad. And it's one of Iraq's largest cities. And by the fall of 2004, when Vinman got there, it was under insurgent control. The first battle had ended with the withdrawal of U.S. forces, quote, and the insurgency had now operated there with impunity. Vinman was there for the second battle of Fallujah, known as Operation Phantom Fury. The joint U.S.-Iraqi-British offensive was known as the Dawn, and the battles lasted nearly two months. The insurgency was using weaponry ranging from small arms to big machine guns, RPGs, and lots of IEDs and booby traps. The IED rocket and mortar attacks were constant, and booby traps were everywhere. And as a fighter and as a soldier, Vinman says this was once again right where he wanted to be. On page 72, Alex talks about how he had arrived in Iraq limping because of some shenanigans with his brother Huge before he had deployed. They went boating on Puget Sound and they were jumping Super Tanker Wake on their 14-foot speedboat. And on the way back down off of one giant peak, Alex compressed the same ankle that forced him out of ranger school the first time. Let me read you this paragraph on the bottom of page 72. It says, Huge and I were in our late 20s then. Theoretically, we were grown up, but when together, we still tended to revert to our irrepressible Brooklyn expeditions, now with grown-up power and equipment. We didn't always think things through, and as a result, I showed up to my combat deployment slightly impaired physically. So when Vinman deployed to Iraq as a battalion assistant operations officer in a striker brigade, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry Regiment, 1st Brigade, 25th Infantry Division, out of Fort Lewis. Now, a striker was a new vehicle designed for maneuvering in all conditions. It's huge. It's got eight wheels. It can carry a full rifle squad of like nine men with medium to heavy weapons. But it's fast. It's fast. And since Alex had been so successful in Korea at using light infantry against heavy forces, the lightness and the maneuverability of the striker compared to tanks really appealed to him. They had 50 caliber machine guns, MK-19 grenade launchers, they could transport seven Javelin anti-tank missiles, and they had light and heavy machine guns. And that was their particular striker. Other separate vehicles carried anti-tank systems with heavy mortar, and they were all wired to communicate with each other. Now, his brigade was massive, about 4,000 people with three infantry battalions, a recon battalion, field artillery, and a support battalion. This was the striker's first time out, and Alex's striker brigade was the second striker brigade ever used in combat. 
Now, since I don't know much about army striker units in Fallujah, I'm going to read this prequel to the IED attack. Um, it, it, we were talking about the, the attack at the beginning of the story. This is sort of the prequel to it. He says, right away, my battalion was detached from the parent brigade or selected out. Uh, that's how we ended up in Fallujah. We were designated a reserve unit, a sign of our battalion's strength, deployed in support of a wide array of engagements. Uh, reserve provides one of the Army's most vital strategic and tactical resources. When forming your reserve element, in this case, the Corps Reserve, which is the Marine Corps, you pick your strongest unit because it will be applied at decisive points, either when things get really bad or in order to regain control and prevent a catastrophe, or they are deployed in the event of success to exploit the advantage. To fulfill that special role, our battalion was sent at first uh, to Camp Taji, north of Baghdad. And from there, we were committed as a key reserve unit in support of all kinds of other units in varying engagements. Again, I was learning craft and learning fast. In these shifting dangerous contexts, my margin of error was rapidly narrowing. As the assistant operations officer of the battalion and only an infantry captain, I had multiple things to take in and sort out on the fly, both at the granular on the ground level and at the larger conceptual level. I was also learning the actual terrain in support of operations in northern and western Baghdad. My unit went on every sort of patrol. This involved sharp learning curves. Uh, every Everywhere in these rural areas, canals irrigated the fields with their attendant elevated dikes. They represented a real danger. Indeed, the previous unit had suffered from uh, some deaths from rollovers with the vehicles filling with water. Fortunately, Operation Cabbage Patch had enhanced my judgment regarding the risks of operating in such an environment. And I knew from earlier in that experience that spending time trying to get a striker unit out of a field would put us in enormous amounts of peril uh, from attack from insurgents. So we came up with ideas. Striker drivers sitting forward in a separate compartments from the vehicle commander and the gunner and the infantry squad are especially vulnerable to being crushed or drowned or trapped. Therefore, they deployed compressed air canisters so the drivers could breathe if they were submerged underwater. We also learned that when dealing with an insurgency that's well hidden within a civilian population and operating using surprise attacks, most of your casualties will be taken in the time that you ramp up for an operation when you're just getting the lay of the land. And there's rules for avoiding surprises. First, be alert to both the absence of the normal and the presence of the abnormal. The absence of the normal might be a busy shopping area that suddenly empties out. The presence of the abnormal might be the sudden appearance of clusters of military-aged males in any given area. As an operations officer, I began carrying out my duties in tactical operations centers, and those are the rooms, the TOCs, where all the operations on the ground are coordinated. Joining from a, a patrol from a TOC wasn't always the easiest thing to pull off when encountering danger from an insurgent enemy. When I did make the move, I kept the mantra constantly in my head, absence of the normal, presence of the abnormal. Meanwhile, the coalition was ramping up for the big fight to reclaim Fallujah, and soon our battalion was committed to Phantom Fury. We had a key role to play there, assigned to the 2nd Brigade 1st Cavalry Division, known as the Blackjack Brigade. We were to relieve the Marine Battalion responsible for everything north and east of the city. This meant taking total responsibility from securing what we called the rat lines. Those are the enemy's means of getting supplies in and out. And to get ready for that operation, we performed the usual handoff between units known as Relief in Place Transfer of Authority, or RIP-TOA. This is a quick but crucial operation, as the outgoing unit of Marines was replaced by our incoming unit. There were logistics, etc. Skipping ahead here, the patrol consisted of a convoy of Humvees. My battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Todd McCaffrey, rode in one of the vehicles with his Marine counterpart. Our intelligence officer, Captain Ed Harris, rode in a vehicle with his Marine counterpart. And I, Assistant Battalion Operations Officer, rode in a vehicle with my Marine counterpart, Captain Adams. 
The captain and I were in the third vehicle of the convoy as we rolled out to inspect the combat. No one in the first vehicle saw it or said anything about it either. And Alex learned a long-term lesson about trusting his gut that day. He also learned a lesson about letting his guard down. Quote, for no good reason, there's a tendency to relax when the task is nearing completion. Another lesson he learned is that frustration and boredom can lead to catastrophe. Counterinsurgency warfare is really an endless series of uneventful patrols. Some officers also overreact to an attack. One guy uh, responded by detaining several members of the civilian community and intimidating them in hopes that they, you know, he could find out who was responsible for the attack. And that might seem like a natural reaction, but it's a violation of the law of war. And he was creating conditions for terrorist recruitment. And Alex talks here about how restraining totally natural emotions is a big part of being in the military. You have to trust your gut, but you can't let adrenaline or anger cloud your judgment. And they were tasked with winning the hearts and minds of the local population, not terrorizing them. He says, quote, you can't let your guard down and you can't make it personal. I have a feeling that lesson would come in handy for Colonel Vindman later. In November 2004, Alex's brigade would pull out fast to join a fighting brigade in Mosul, where Zarqawi was operating out of. Giant battalions like that, 4,000 people, don't usually move quickly, but this one did. And it, it was well known for what they did. It became the template for what was used in 2015 during a Russian annexation of Crimea. We remember that. And, and uh, long U.S. columns of strikers could be seen moving rapidly across parts of Eastern Europe in military exercises called Operation Dragoon Ride, which was intended to demonstrate the speed with which these giant U.S. forces could move along Russia's borders. And it worked. In 2020, though, Trump announced that those brigades, though they played a key role in establishing security in Europe, would be pulled out of Germany to punish Angela Merkel, who he was mad at. The next few pages, Alex talks about moving up, commanding operations instead of being just, you know, part of them. And I'll let you read this story about one operation he orchestrated. He tells it so well. He compares it to conducting an orchestra and how these kinds of operations were hurtling him forward beyond his rank toward rooms even bigger and more critical than tactical operation centers where the biggest and most important work got done. Alex often said what he learned of courage, he learned in combat. And he lost so many of his comrades in Iraq that in 2019, when no one else was stepping up to Trump, Alex felt a duty to those people that he had lost, that we had lost. Consequences to himself be damned, right? He learned in Iraq more, a more nuanced approach to justice as well. Not everything is black and white. You have to consider things on a case-by-case basis. Because, you know, morality is simple when you approach it in a black and white fashion. But without sensitivity to the immediate situation, there could be no real morality. He says, quote, I'd left Korea a solid officer. In Iraq, I started to become something more. At the end of 2005, when my combat deployment was over, I went back to Fort Lewis and asked Rachel to marry me. And that wraps up this chapter. Short chapter, short episode, I know. We will start next week with chapter six on page 91 called Nothing Starts With Us. Thank you for listening to the MSW Book Club. Thanks to Alexander Vindman and Rachel and his family and just everybody who's amazing, really. All of you, thanks for listening. I appreciate you. Until next time, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.